This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. More than a year ago, in July 2021, the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD, the Secretariat released the first official draft of a new global biodiversity framework to guide actions worldwide through 2030 to preserve and protect nature and its essential services to people. So the framework includes 21 targets for 2030, and there has been particular interest in Target 3, a global target known better as 30 by 30, which aims to protect and conserve 30% of the world's terrestrial, freshwater, coastal and marine ecosystems. Now, Malaysia is one of the world's 17 mega biodiverse countries, but we are rapidly losing our rich biodiversity. How can working towards the 30, 30, 30 by 30 target help Malaysia if implemented properly? So I'm going to discuss this and more with Julian Hyde. He's the general manager of ReefCheck Malaysia and Jasmine Mohamed Saad. She's a policy consultant with ReefCheck Malaysia. This is another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia, our monthly series looking at the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework process and what it all means. Welcome, everyone. How are you today? Very good. Thank you, Julia. Good to be here again. Yes, good to be here again. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, so I think always a good start. I wanted to to just remind everyone, you know, what this is all about, the CBD, uh, the framework, and why we're always talking about this 30 by 30 target. I think always a good reminder. Uh, maybe you can give us, uh, you know, any updates or anything that you can tell us about the 30 by 30 target, you know, uh, how we are we any closer to making this a reality of some sort? <laughs> uh, yes. So the 30 by, tar- 30 by 30 target means that the nations of the world sign up to the principle of protecting 30% of global land and sea areas by 2030. And as we've said before, the 30% target uh, of protecting ecosystems is scientifically sound. So it's not just plucked out of thin air. There is a reason for it. In terms of an update, I think the only thing that's happening now after two rounds of negotiations in Geneva and Nairobi in the last six months, what seems to be happening is that there's some clarity emerging on just what the 30% means. And there's a stronger message coming out that 30% is not a global, uh, sorry, a national commitment. In other words, Malaysia doesn't have to sign up to protect 30% of its waters. Uh, It's signing up to this aspirational target of 30% globally, but nationally, locally, it can do what it needs to do. So that clarity is the thing that is emerging and perhaps will help the negotiation process moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we Target 3 is the one that we tend to focus on. And um, maybe you can uh, explain, you know, how it can actually come to fruition. So there are two types of areas, if I'm not mistaken, that counts towards this target. Am I correct? Uh, can you tell me what these two different aspects are, I suppose, you know, to, to oper- operationalize Target 3? Yes. So when we look at uh, protected areas, uh, we can either establish completely new protected areas uh, in areas where there is currently no protection. Uh, Much of the coastline of Sabah, for example, still has no protected status. Uh, The alternative is to look at improving the management of existing protected areas. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, in peninsular Malaysia, on the east coast, and the West Coast combined, there are 42 islands which are gazetted as marine protected areas. So the target talks about establishing well-managed protected areas. So we either do new ones or we improve the management of the existing ones. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jasmine, anything you wanted to add to that? 
Yeah, I think the 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 only aspect for target 30 by 30 would be the the new element would be the importance of the IPLCs, the indigenous peoples and local communities. So their voice are very well heard during the last um, two negotiations. So they are very they are feeling very strongly on on uh, to to intervene in target 30 by 30 so that their rights are not being ignored um, and then they are not being deprived from their own resources. So that is something that we need to be mindful of at all times. Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, definitely. Uh, definitely that is, you know, coming out stronger and stronger in each, I think, uh, meeting, right, ahead of uh, COP15. Yeah. Um, and let's talk about uh, those two those two different aspects, right? So there's uh, protected areas and there's also OECMs or uh, other effective area-based conservation measures. Let's talk about uh, protected areas. How can we actually improve the management of existing protected areas, which we know that Malaysia has? Um, improving the management of existing areas is, uh, I think, largely a case of changing the way we do things a little bit. So there's a lot that is good about the way that marine parks are managed in Malaysia. Uh, We have effective legislation in place. We have the marine parks section, which has people on the islands uh, doing patrols and so on and so forth. Um, But I think there are areas of management that they're missing. I think there are areas of management which perhaps government isn't great at because government is the the bureaucracy, it's the administrative force. So it's great at doing the patrolling and enforcement, but don't have a problem there. It's great at administering the framework of the marine protected area. But I think our experience shows that government's not so good at doing local consultations, for example. I'm not saying they don't do them. I'm not saying they can't do them, but it's not a strength. Um, Whereas other organisations which are community-based, I'm not just talking about ourselves, there are many of the WWF, for example, they're more used to talking to local communities, they've had more experience of it. So that's one area that could be uh, worked on. And, and it ties in with what Jasmine just said about uh, IPLCs. Local communities, uh, it, it's increasingly being acknowledged and recognised around the world, including in Malaysia. If you don't improve local communities, you create problems. If you do improve them, get more buy-in, you get better compliance and so on. So if we can just improve the the participation of the locals, do more consultations with them, give them a role in management somewhere, I think that would go a very, very long way to improving the management of existing protected areas. Mm-hmm. And this is something we've spoken about, isn't it, Julian? Um, we've had we had that chat with uh, Alvin a few months ago, and you know he kind of broke it down about how how bringing all those different, how just having conversations that was the most one of the most important things, right, with the local yeah. stakeholders. <laughs> I think he spent the I think he spent the first year sitting in the coffee shops having having chats with them, yeah. uh, but that's important because it builds trust. You know, are you are you just here for the week, or are you going to be here for a long time? Mm. Oh, you're still here. Oh, that's interesting. So you you develop that depth of relationship like that. Mm-hmm. And yes, when you ask them, do they want to be involved? They say, yeah, we want to be involved. Yeah. Uh, it's just that the current mechanism doesn't allow it. So how can we change that to provide for their participation? Mm-hmm. Um, Jasmine, anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, um, I would like to see the participation of local communities not something that is. Um, it is not working against the government, the administrators. Um, I would like to see as added strength um, to the agencies that they have extra eyes to be their their watch out, their 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 monitor monitors as well. So it works hand in hand. They complement each other. So uh, it should not be seen as 
taking away some of the administ administrative powers of the agencies and so on. So uh, more eyes, more hands are <laughs> better than uh, none at all. Mm, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a saying along the lines of no, no government agency no government bureaucracy ever gives gives away any of its power. None of them, none of them strive <laughs> to get smaller. It's the same in the UK, right? So I think what we're trying to say is we're not trying to remove power from yes. the government agencies. We're trying to get the, the locals involved as partners. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So we're not threatening anybody by, by suggesting these things. Okay. All right. And again, uh, those conversations need to happen, desperately need to happen because otherwise nothing's going to change, right? Um, mm -hmm. so, okay. So that's uh, that's in terms of protected areas. But the other thing I mentioned was the OECMs, the uh, other effective area-based conservation measures. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, I mean, that's basically, you know, it can help meet the 30 by 30 target. Uh can you tell me more about that? You know, what are some examples of OECMs and why are they also considered so, um, you know, a piece of this puzzle, I suppose? Basically, one, one key differential between OECMs and MPEs are that OECM uh, do not put conservation as their main priority outcomes. So they are um, allowed activities surrounding it. So there are some papers or even suggestions saying that the buffer zones around protected areas can be considered as OECM as well. Um, the only challenge is in terms of managing it, the institutional arrangements, the governance of it, the legal instruments uh, surrounding it. We do not have that yet in place, but the idea is there. Um, I, I believe, Julian, um, through the, their involvement, RCM with the GF Godfish um, project is one such example in terms of uh, network MPAs, but that, that is something we do not have any more tangible information. Yes, Julia might be able to expand on it, but OECM is definitely an, an, an option. I think it's more, more research on the terrestrial side of things. So we need more work first on the marine side to even consider that for Malaysia. Mm -hmm. uh, Julian? Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a complicated topic. Um, let me give you an example. An island uh, in, let's say in Sabah that has one resort on it. Right, perhaps the island is privately owned. So they're managing that island, for example, the, the you know the waters around the resort for safety and security of guests. You know to make sure that boats don't hit them, make sure there's no conflict there. Now, what 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 happens effectively is that the fishermen stay away from that area. So it's effectively a protected area, um, but it has no legal status. Right. So the area is being managed for reasons other than conservation. Uh, it's diver security. It creates a snorkeling area or a diving area, but conservation is an outcome of it. So that's a, that's an example of an OECM. Now there aren't actually any. I don't think there are any registered OECMs in Malaysia yet. Um, but as Jasmine says, I think the key the key thing is institutionally. It does does the resort really want to manage this area? You know, does it want to be brought into the formal management system? What's the legal protection for them? So they are they're kind of they're a great idea, but having problems operationalizing them, making making them a reality. Okay. And, and and no sort of standards, I suppose, by which to measure their success as well. That doesn't quite exist at the moment or that yeah. I don't think we've got as far in the development of OECMs as having a standard for measuring success. So that's, that's part of the ongoing conversation. Okay. But it, I mean, I, I am correct in saying that those two um, protected areas and OECMs, those are seen as the way of um, achieving the 30 by 30 target. Yes. 
Okay. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's just go for a quick break. When we come back, let's talk about something else, you know, that might be, you know, useful in this help. The green list, you know, as opposed to the red list from the IUCN that we keep talking about. I'm speaking today to Julian Hyde, General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia, and Jasmine Mohamed Saad, a policy consultant with Reef Check Malaysia. We're talking about the 30 by 30 target again. Uh, but basically, you know, how implementing it will actually help Malaysia. You know, we're going to find out more about that after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me on the line today are Julian Hyde and Jasmine Mohamed Saad. Julian is the General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia. Jasmine is a Policy Consultant with Reef Check Malaysia. It's another episode of our series, Biodiversity for Malaysia, where we want to look at everything related to the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework process. We like to focus on uh, Target 3, the 30 by 30 target, which aims to protect and conserve 30% of the world's terrestrial, freshwater, coastal and marine ecosystems. We're explaining how that can be very, very beneficial uh, in this fight, you know, to protect our biodiversity. So before the break, guys, we were talking about um, OECMs, which is other effective area-based conservation measures and also protected areas, you know, two different aspects that will really help, uh, you know, achieve target three, that 30 by 30 target. Now I want to talk about something else called the IUCN green list. So we often talk about the red list on the show, which is basically, you know, all the stuff that, uh, all the bad stuff, let's just say, right? But talk to me about the green list. How does it work? I mean, what is it basically? So Greenlist is a standard for management uh, developed by IUCN to ensure that protected areas are achieving good conservation outcomes, right? Uh, there's a lot of talk in the conservation field about uh, uh, around the world about a lot of parks or what they call paper parks. So they're established, but there's no real management, there's no management plan or whatever it is. And that's a, it's a problem everywhere, absolutely everywhere. What Greenlist does is give you a formal structure to be able to design, manage, and implement a management system, which if you implement these things, ensures good outcomes. So it puts you in the gold class, as it were. These, you know, these are the best of the best MPAs. They can show that they're designed well, managed well, all of those things which are going to ensure good conservation outcomes. Okay, all right. And um, so that's basically how it works. And what would you say are the benefits of having, I mean, do, does Malaysia have a green list status? You know, what are the benefits of having that uh, green list status? Mm. Um, the benefits are, I, th I think there are two main benefits. One is, first of all, to demonstrate that you are, uh, that you are uh, managing the MPA well, Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll, I'll come back to just the, the different elements of it. But the, the status shows if you are green list status, you can show that we are managing this to an international standard and it's being managed well. Uh, and, you know, we are not a paper park. We're actually achieving conservation outcomes. So that's for the park itself. But if you imagine um, an island like Tiamat Island or Red Anger, a tourist destination, right, that says we are a green list accredited site, right, that means we are a very well managed MPA. Uh, you can use that in your tourism branding, right? Mm. Maybe you can use it as a way to improve the value of tourism. Maybe you can use it as a way to justify uh, increasing fees uh, so that you can further improve management. You've got more money, you've got more resources. Maybe you can use it as a way to justify limiting numbers to a site mm. uh, or you know, many, many things you can do, local only jobs and so on and so forth, because, hey, we're green list, which means we're doing things well, which means that it's kind of we get we get to set the rules because we have already shown the commitment, demonstrated how it all works, demonstrated that we're working to this standard. Uh, 
um, and therefore we get to you know decide how the site operates. Yeah, um, just just one more in terms of the branding that Julian was saying. It will also to me um, uh, bring in more investment, more quality um, investments from from partners. So, in actual fact, indirectly you'll be developing the area with um, most of the best best practices. So at the same time, you'll be empowering the local communities as well to be to be using their resources more sustainably. So the, the benefit encompasses the whole area and including the people as well while generating economic value um, to the resources. So um, it, because it is very hard to quantify what does coral reef contribute in economically, right? Yeah. So these are the ways that we could um, um, make the people understand that this, you are paying for this actually. Mm. So, I mean, here at the premium with um, at the resort that's been uh, at a place where it's been green listed and most of the practices are, are sustainable so you're you're, being, you're convinced and um, happy to spend that that kind of money mm-hmm. okay and it can be an attraction as well if you look at trends in the tourism industry there is a move to people wanting um, more authentic experiences in pristine environments. They don't want to be surrounded by crowds and crowds of people. Mm-hmm. So if you can say that we're a green list site, you know, you're, you're showing that you are meeting those, uh, those sorts of uh, criteria. And so people, uh, you, you, you know, this is where the higher end tourism comes in. People will be attracted to your place because of it being a green list. And in an increasingly competitive tourism market, you know, maybe mm-hmm. it's something that we need to really think about. And how does one get that status um, of of green list of a green list site? I mean, okay, let's just talk about Malaysia first. Are there any existing green list sites in Malaysia? How does one actually get that status? There is one green list site in Malaysia uh, at the moment, and it's just fairly recently, in the last few months, received accreditation to the IUCN green list. Um, it's uh, it's the Sugud Islands Marine Conservation Area. Uh, in Sabah, off of uh, Sandakan. We call it Simca for short. Uh, It's an area with three small islands, one of which has a resort. And the areas, the waters around those three islands are gazetted as the the Sugar Islands Marine Conservation Area under the Sabah Wildlife Enactment. And they've been working on green listing for several years now. uh, And they finally ticked all of the boxes, as it were, in the standard. And uh, the lady that runs Simca, who's a good friend of ours, Achi, she says that it's justified all of the work that she's been doing over the years to raise standards of management, to implement good systems, to try and keep the reef as healthy as possible. Green listing is like, that's the ultimate box ticked. So that's the only site we have, uh, and and we need to do others. But you asked about how it happens. Um, it's, It's quite complicated. The green list standard has four components. It talks about good governance, uh, making sure that people are uh, that, that people have a, a guaranteed legitimacy and voice. So local communities, particularly, it talks about transparency and accountability, and so on. Um, the second, so the second component is the sound design and planning. So you need to make sure that you understand exactly what it is that you are protecting. Uh, so the major site values, as that's referred to, what are the threats to the major site values? Uh, what are the e- socioeconomic contexts of the site value? So you understand, you have a good understanding of a protected area and you understand what it is you're trying to achieve. The third one is, the third component is uh, is basically effective management. Uh, 
Uh, and effective management talks about having uh, a long-term management strategy. Uh, it means that you are managing the ecological conditions in the site. So uh, a typical island like Pulatiaman will have, you know, we know where the reef areas are, how are they being managed to make sure that they maintain their ecological condition? And that's what our annual survey program is all about. You're also managing within the social and economic context of the area. So you're managing with the local community uh, in mind. Uh, you're understanding the threats and so on. So those three things, if those three things are in place, good governance, good design, and good management, then you are effectively going to achieve the successful conservation outcomes that we're talking about. So we're no longer saying, oh, we're just, we're a marine park, yeah, and we do this and this and this. We're saying this is a standard. There are four components, 17 criteria, and I think 50 indicators. Wow. So you've got to look at all of these different things and say, do we do that? If we don't do that, how do we put that into place? What mechanism do we need to make that reality? So you might look at community consultations. You know, the, the standards require that the local community is, is effectively consulted. Uh, how do we do that? How do we prove it? So we'll set up a system whereby there is a court, there's a management body, which includes the local community, mm -hmm. and it has a quarterly meeting. And the results of that quarterly meeting are shared around all stakeholders. So you can demonstrate that there is real meaningful community participation. And like I said, all of those come along. If you put all of those together, then you can demonstrate that you're conserving your major site values, you're conserving the ecosystem services, and more importantly, you're conserving the cultural values of, and, the, and the desires of the local community to be involved and engaged. So, like I said, a bit complicated, but we've spent the last year and a half looking at this. And, and when you start to pull it apart, look at the way that the components and the criteria fit together, it is understandable, but it does it does take a while. So Simca has gone through all of those things. Okay. Okay. So anyone looking to expand and anyone looking to to achieve this green list status would need to sort of go through that same process and fulfill all that different criteria that you just mentioned. Correct. Okay. Yes. All right. I just pulled, pulled up the list of um, uh, Malaysian listed ones. And yes, uh, Subud Island Marine Conservation Area, the only one listed, but there are several other ca uh, candidates. So there's Bako National Park, there's Danu Valley Conservation Area, Jagoi Heritage Forest, so many others. I, I didn't even know the, uh, I didn't even know these places, some of these places, but they're all, I suppose, in the process of uh, getting there. La. Yeah, and that can take two or three years okay. Okay. to put everything in place. Okay. Um, and uh, and th there is a, there is a support and assistance. There's a thing called the EGLE, which is the expert assistance group to help a site through the process. Okay. Uh, a, a mentor can be assigned to the site to help the management to understand the process and implement the various things that need to be done, write the paperwork, write the systems and so on. Um, so you're not you're not on your own. There's mm -hmm. quite a lot of assistance for it. Um, I think the common thing about all of those sites is that they are all in East Malaysia. Yes, you're right. Because it's Santubong National Park, Suk Lake Forest Reserve, Tun Mustafa Park. It's hard to imagine that these you know very well known parks haven't actually uh, reached that status yet either, huh? Green listing. I, I won't say it's fairly new. But I think it's relatively new in okay. Malaysia and it's okay. taken a while to get recognition and understanding of just what it can be. Because there are other systems to to uh, to recognize uh, marine parks and protected areas. Like, for example, Pulau Tiaman is, a, is, a, is recognized by the Coral Triangle Initiative as a level four MPA. Mm -hmm. So Tiaman is recognized as having achieved some successes. Um, 
but I think, like I said earlier on, the green list is like it's the gold standard of uh, of, of standard, the gold standard of standards, <laughs> um, uh, and and so people are starting to understand how it can work. And the thing is, if you're talking about implementing thirty by thirty, as we said earlier on, you can either establish new areas, um, or you can improve the management of existing areas. A green list is a tool for achieving that. So as we move towards implementing thirty by thirty assuming the target ever actually gets agreed, but something's going to be agreed on area-based conservation. So at some point we'll have to look at, okay, we have a target, whatever the size of that target is, um, how are we going to achieve this? And uh, we need systems whereby we can demonstrate very clearly that an area has achieved a certain level of management effectiveness. As it stands, right, uh, do protected landscapes that are currently already protected, do they count or can they count towards the 30 by 30 target? Oh, yes, definitely. Definitely, yeah. okay. Um, one of the challenges we face is, is that under the previous biodiversity targets from 2011 to 2020, hmm. the Aichi targets, yeah. the area-based conservation target there was 10% of uh, sea areas. Correct, uh, yes. And Malaysia got to somewhere around 5 5.5%. Mm. So we only achieve fifty percent of that target. So one of the one of the big arguments against Malaysia signing up for the thirty percent is that well, if we only achieve five percent of the ten percent target, why would we sign up for thirty percent? And and I completely agree with that. That would be that would be crazy. Mm. But we then you know once you understand the targets better, then you get this clarification we've talked about before. It's not a national target of thirty percent. It's a global aspiration. So we're still free to set our own targets, and I think at the moment we're still at ten percent for terrestrial areas. So all of the all of the areas we have already count to that target. So let's say that we decide in our national biodiversity policy that we're going to retain the ten percent target for Malaysia. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. our contribution to the global thirty percent target. Um, we're already halfway there. Correct. So what do we need to do to, you know, to reach that that target? Um, okay. Expand some areas. Some some expansion is going to be necessary, but we also want to make sure that the areas are effectively managed. That's where green list comes in. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Jasmine, anything at all you wanted to add? Yeah, um, it's interesting that you've um, uh, put up the some of the candidates that's working on the green list. Uh, um, I'm assuming all of it um, probably are terrestrial based, except for Sugar Island. Uh, to Mustafa. To Mustafa, yes. To Mustafa okay. part so that, that's ongoing. So I'm, I'm suspecting part of why it's going to take a long while <laughs> to meet the criteria of the green listing, especially under the effective management coming from the policy side of things, will be um, looking at the various state-federal um, relationships, sure. the yeah. legislations, the um, institutional setup, even the cross-cutting agencies that need to sit down together and identify a common common objective. So those will take a long time, um, partly to educate um, the relevant parties, to make them understand where we are coming from. It's not totally conservation-based. It's, it's not for just the environment, it's for the people as well. So um, uh, to be fair, for the pu- public um, officials that is is taking a long time just to look at the management side of things okay all right well still got a long way to go uh, until we uh, head to <laughs> to montreal uh the, who knows what's going to happen there as well oh, yeah. <laughs> But um, but you know, thank you so much, you know, for joining me and for yeah, we're just we're gonna keep it up, yeah, we're gonna keep up these discussions and show why it's so important. Um, before I let you go, any last message that you'd like to leave us with, uh, Julian, you want to start first? We are working on Polar Tierman, uh, mm. and I think it's a good candidate for green listing. 
because a lot of the things that are necessary for being listing are already in place. So at the national level, we have the we have the Federal uh, Fisheries Act, which controls marine parks. So clear legislation. There are various regulations passed to define where the marine parks are, how big they are, and so on. So we have a good regulatory base. Um, the Marine Park Authority has the facilities on the island, so there's a good presence already. So the administrative side, like I said earlier on, that's, that's, in, that's in place. Yeah. Now, we've been working on the island for several years. We've, we have good relationships with the local community. We know there's a lot of buy-in to the idea of the protected area. Don't have a problem with that. There was a survey done recently where the local community said, basically, we don't have a problem with the marine park itself. We just want to be more involved. Mm. So if you like, we've done half of the work, well, the government's done half of the work already setting it up. If we want to go for green list status now, we've got to look at making sure that there is good governance, that there is transparency. And so that is something that we are pursuing with the relevant authorities at the moment. Uh, as Jasmine said, we've got, there's a lot of, it's not just marine parks we have to talk to. You know, there's a lot of other government agencies who are also stakeholders, both at federal level and state level. Mm -hmm. So a lot of work to do on that, but it's, it's something we're looking at. Okay. Uh, Jasmine? Um, Julian wrapped it up very nicely with a bow there. Um, but my take would be um, just listen to the people, have conversations with them, and it's not just for the environment, it's for uh, the people and the next generation as well. Yeah, so that's my take. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, both of you, uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Julian Hyde, General Manager at Reef Check Malaysia, and Jasmine Mohamed Saad, a policy consultant at Reef Check Malaysia. I forgot to say, congratulations. Uh, Reef Check Malaysia just celebrated your 15th anniversary. So, happy anniversary to you all. And uh, if folks would like to find out more about Reef Check, just head to reefcheck.org.my. Find out how you can help, how, find out how you can get involved in their work. Uh, you have beach cleanups coming up, isn't it, next month? International Coastal Cleanup Day is on the 10th and 11th of September this year. Okay, all right. So, so come and join in. Okay, so follow you guys on social media. I think all the updates are there, yeah? Yes. Okay, just search for Reef Check Malaysia, find out how you can help. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.